Hey, welcome to this episode of Light 'em Up. We take a deep dive on the criminal justice system, crime scene investigation, and leadership. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, I'm your host, Phil Rizzo. I'm the principal owner of Rizzo's Protective Group. We are a high-risk security consulting firm headquartered out of Akron, Ohio, and with offices in the Bronx, New York, and Cerro Alto, the Dominican Republic. And as we put the ball on the tee to line things up for kickoff, we speak life, health, and prosperity over each and every one of you, and we thank you for joining us. Today, we have the distinct honor and privilege to sit and talk with my longtime and lifelong friend, Mr. Hayward R. Prude III. For me, he truly represents the definition of a brother from another mother. Absolutely. We've been friends since Hector was a puppy. <laughs> and today we highlight his lifetime career of public service, which has spanned more than 20 years as an emergency medical service technician on the front lines in some of the toughest areas of the inner city of Cleveland, Ohio. A bullet-resistant vest with standard issue equipment for him and and for his partner so they could safely respond to all of their calls for assistance on the rough and tumble mean streets of Cleveland. He has never, and I'll repeat that, he has never shied away from his duties or responsibilities. And he has dedicated his life towards saving the lives of others and helping others. He's worked to keep youth off the streets by developing a football, basketball, and cheerleading outreach program where he has been a head coach with the EMS Rams in the inner city of Cleveland, Ohio, a mentor, motivator, motivational keynote speaker, a servant leader, and entrepreneur. He's recently become an ordained pastor of the cloth, and within the past year, he became the recipient of a kidney transplant as he has suffered with chronic kidney disease for years. He currently is the founder of the Kick Foundation Incorporated, that's K-I-C-K, the Kick Foundation Incorporated, which stands for Keep Inspiring Clean Kidney. Kidneys, a fully recognized 501c3 not-for-profit charitable organization by the Secretary of State for the great state of Ohio. Hey, bro, we are honored, and I mean honored, to have you. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Light em Up. Well, I had to do a double take. I didn't know you were speaking about me, but I am humbled and grateful to be with you tonight. Um, it's definitely a pleasure. <laughs> We're so glad to have you. So glad to have you. And we got a lot to get into. So without further ado, let's dive right in. All right. Hey, bro, with so much to discuss, it would be next to impossible to cover everything that we'd like to cover with the time that we have allotted. But nevertheless, we're going to push to touch on aspects of your 20 plus year career as an EMS technician in the city of Cleveland, Ohio, and the often silent suffering that men can go through when they are victims of domestic abuse and your faith walk with God as a pastor. Does that sound okay tonight? Sounds okay to me. Yes, sir. Great. As God is the Alpha and the Omega, let's start right there. That'd be a perfect jumping off point. Can you share with our listeners, when was your day of ordination? When did you become a pastor? I was, or I was ordained actually in 2017, but I hadn't settled into an edifice that was 
tied into the outreach ministry that I have been a part of for the better part of the last 25 years. So my actual official ordination in a church body was back in 2018. But I've been an actually ordained pastor since 2017. I see. I see. Very interesting. Uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot in that span of time. I'm sure you've encountered a lot in that position of trust. Absolutely, yeah. In your walk with God throughout your lifetime, since you've been ordained especially, how has God favored you in spite of your enemies? I, I think the uh, biggest thing uh, for me is that I knew that as a young child, this is well before the official title and the pomp and circumstance that comes along with this, this office that I have been afforded, and, and I don't take it lightly because it's not about me, but God showed me as a, I was probably around nine years old that my life was about serving people. So while I hold this title, I'm a servant first. I have definitely seen a lot in and outside the church walls. And the thing that really tugs at my heart is the suffering that people still endure in the midst of it all. And, you know, I think that God has given me the tools and the gifts to be able to uh, intercede in people's lives on many different levels whether it be professionally or in ministry or inside of the church walls. I don't look at it as favor. I look at it as God put place to call on my life. Uh, I ran from that call for a little bit because I couldn't believe that he would choose me. But when I think about all of the folks in the, the good book that we read, uh, no one was free of some sort of suffering or some sort of shortcoming. But oftentimes when we are, when our number is called, as the scripture the Bible is Matthew 22 and 6. For many are called, but few are chosen. But I, I take it to believe that all of us were called in some, some, some form or capacity. Uh, we just have to know and understand what our call is. Everybody isn't designed to take on a massive amount of responsibility. It can be something simple as walking past someone in the human family and saying, hello, how are you today? People don't realize how that could actually change somebody's life. No, it often is the smallest things that a person encounters which can have a profound impact on their day and their existence. Absolutely. Absolutely. What have you learned in your walk with God that you would consider to have to have had a profound impact on you spiritually that you'd be willing to share perhaps with a fellow person of faith uh, about their walk? Well, I think the biggest thing, you know, for me, um, they say that most of us as believers, all of us, I should say, we have a sense of insanity to believe in something that we cannot see, we cannot touch, and we can't not here. And so even prior to taking a role in a church, God has favored me when I didn't even realize it. And as I began to become a little more seasoned in my walk and understand, you know, I'll take a page out of the battle I have had with this diagnosis. I don't give it a name. Officially, it's the medical community calls it chronic kidney disease. Uh, with that being said, God allowed me to break down barriers in that process in getting a transplant god kind of just he stepped in and made some things happen that don't normally happen in terms of time in terms of being able to receive this life saving operation that i needed even the medical team they were amazed that, that i got in so quickly and and i just chuckled you know a lot of times when they would you know ask me well who do you know I say well i know somebody bigger than all of us <laughs> and you know what we don't understand 
And it's no matter what our shortcomings are, God still wants us to win. But we have to be willing to take responsibility for that. And a lot of it is on us. And, you know, the God that we serve is not a genie in the lamp. We can't rub the lamp, get a wish. He comes out and gives us what we want and what we desire if we are not doing something in return to him. He does want to give us the desires of our hearts. Scripture speaks clearly of that. But we have to sacrifice something to get those things. Absolutely. In becoming a pastor, how has your knowledge of God's signature on your life or God having his hands on you influenced you to do the work that you do? Well, again, for me, God clearly, clearly made it clear to me a long time ago. I I had no desire to be a pastor uh, after I realized what the call on my life is because at the end of the day, uh, we are all preachers of his word. We can all deliver his word. It's just everyone has a different responsibility to be able to deliver the message of the good news. And again, it could be something simple as being kind to someone. It could be something simple as uh, you see a homeless person on the street. Believers always get tripped up in this particular aspect. They worry about what the person is going to do with the money. That's not our job. If God directs you to give, you give. Because when we, if we look at it from a different perspective, when we make a mistake, God doesn't do a double take and say, I wonder if he or she, he already knows what we're going to do. Because he knew us before we were even formed in our mother's womb. The pastor thing just allowed me to be able to have access to more of the introspective things of people and be able to dig deeper into people who are suffering, who are lost, who don't understand. I've been afforded that opportunity uh, just because of the work that I've done for the past 25 years in this community. But when I became the pastor, I was just uh, a pastor, I'm sorry, I was just able to dig a little deeper and and get with some people in one-on-one scenarios and and try to understand uh, other people's perspective. You know, for me as a pastor, I don't condemn another person's perspective if it's different from mine because it's our responsibility to show the love of God. God doesn't criticize us when we mess up or when we don't do something that he doesn't approve of and who are we to do that when somebody else does the same thing and that really is troublesome for me because you know as believers the only thing only responsibility that God puts on us spread the seed plant the seed spread the word we don't have to do anything after that we're so worried about what a person will do what they will receive how they will react that's not our responsibility our responsibility is to love the human family period absolutely and it ends there absolutely Uh, you bring up excellent points And to advance the ball a little bit further down the field, do you think that God can be the author of adversity? Now, I'm talking about adversity that is designed to help us to perfect our walk with him. Perhaps maybe some form of an attention getter to help us pump the brake, press pause, and refocus our eyes on the prize that only comes from him. What comes to mind when I, with that question is the story of Job. God is not the author of adversity. However, when you think about this story in the Bible, and I'll kind of simplify it for the listeners, um, Job was God's faithful servant. And um, so Satan went to God and said, hey, I know this guy, you know, I want to I want to do some things to him. And God allowed Job to suffer on one condition that Satan did not kill him. But the, the confusion did not come from God. It came from Satan. However, I think God uses situations that we put ourselves in because a lot of times it's about choice. 
um, if you really kind of break down the walls of how people get themselves into into unfortunate situations, a good deal of those times is because someone made a bad decision and they knew they should. You know, the, uh, the thing people say, well, it was something in my gut. That's what's called the Holy Spirit because God lives in all of us. That wasn't luck. That wasn't the tingling you get. That's your inner Holy Spirit speaking to you saying, hey, sir, man, madam, you may want to take a moment and think twice about this because God lives within all of us and he warns us before we make the decision so he allows us to go through it and then we have to go through the storm yes it does teach us a lesson but God is not the author of confusion at all or adversity at all okay in what areas of your life do you feel that God is asking more from you and of you and how are you approaching this calling on your life one of the things that God put on my heart at the, at the outset of this pandemic is that we have made um, religion into more of a circus if you will and he has demanded me to get back to the basics which means that you know we're we've gotten away from what the true meaning of our walk with God is we're more concerned about you know the choir and, and the this and the that and things that really don't matter in terms of if we are pleasing unto God himself and so what I mean by getting back to the basics is I think we have just gotten so deep and if you know what breaks my heart is the non-believer or the person who's on the fence or the person who doesn't understand this is why they look at us with the critical eye because we make it appear that this walk with God is near impossible it's not impossible it's not difficult it's just a matter of what are we willing to give up to please God so you think about it if we want to let's say travel to California and we knew that we know those plane tickets are 500 bucks what are we willing to sacrifice to make that happen most human beings are willing to do that but then when we talk about our walk with God we make it as if it's impossible so you know some of the things God doesn't want us to do he doesn't want us to lie doesn't want us to steal doesn't want us to you know, those are things that it's not humanly impossible, but these are the bad habits that we have in our natural man. We are we are born sinners. So God knew that. That's why he sent his son to die for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. In your pastoring, is pastoring a part of your journey or is there more to it that you feel? Pastoring is just a part of my journey. As I stated multiple times already, my journey is to serve people in any capacity. And ministry does not always mean you're singing in the choir. Ministry is it, it encompasses so many different things. Uh, you can be serving food at a homeless shelter. That's given because God wants us to take care of each other in whatever capacity we are able to. So again, I, I underscore the importance for the listeners. Maybe you're not called to be a pastor, but maybe you might one day decide to, you know what, I'm going to go volunteer at such and such a place. That is what God wants us to do because all people, not all, I, should, I shouldn't say all, some people are suffering and to see another person pour out their heart could literally save a person's life. Uh, and that can be in any capacity. It can be something small or even like you think about with the pandemic, checking on your folks, you know, especially those who live alone and things like that. That is so important to do. And these are the things that we are supposed to do as believers. We are supposed to, the Bible says we are our brother's keeper. And that, it, it, it's not synonymous with anything. It is what you have the capacity to do or what God has put on your heart. So again, everybody doesn't have to have 50 thousand things on their plate or, or a massive amount of responsibilities it can be something very small it can be everybody
everybody's call, everybody's purpose is different. Nobody's purpose is exactly the same. But in in order to know your purpose, you have to know yourself. Absolutely. Because God lives within you. And I can't tell you how many people, and just in this walk as a believer, even before leadership, I've run into so many people that have told me, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't even know why I'm here. So when you run into that, you have to you have to backtrack because then it's easy to throw scripture at a person. It's easy to tell a person what they should or should not do or what they should or should not be or how they should or should not conduct themselves. But again, it goes back to what I said before. Our responsibility is to love, not condemn a person for what they are not. Because we all came from somewhere, all of us, some in worse places than others. But we all came from somewhere, and to become a seasoned believer, we had to go through seasons. We had to. We had somebody in our ear telling us the same thing. Did we listen at first? Nobody probably did. It took some time to get to a place where we even accepted the fact that God was real. And that's, that's what I mean by getting back to the basics. Believers have to stop putting expectations on other believers based on where they are in their walk with God. Yeah, and focus on themselves. Do the work. Absolutely. That they have to do do on themselves, yeah. What would you say to critics of the church who might say that oftentimes it's the very Christians who proclaim Christ the loudest often give the blackest of eyes to the Savior by their outward actions to fellow members in the church? Well, I would would encourage people to read the Bible because God already knew this was going to happen. And then if you look at the life of Jesus, all he did was suffer the whole time he walked this earth. Um, He was criticized for everything thing under the sun. He was criticized for being this and criticized for being that. And, you know, and I I truly believe that he taught in parables because he wanted people to really think about who he was. You know, there's going to be critics of everything. And I I totally, I don't understand it 100%, but I get it why people criticize the church because I, I, and and this is where I have to draw the line in the sand. Uh, I think it's the responsibility of the church to underscore the importance that we are humans too. But that comes in our teaching because I I get it. I was one of those people before I became a believer or even in the beginning stages of my walk with God, I would always question a number of different things because it did appear that the the folks uh, above me, they made it like it was impossible. So this is why God has placed this on me. We have to get back to the basics because there's so many people walking away from God for multiple different reasons. A lot of it is from what they see, you know, that's going on in the church. And and, uh, it doesn't matter what denomination you follow. We're seeing a lot of different problems uh, come up in multiple different denominations and practices of of all over the world. And when people see that, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to do a double take. They're going to say, hey, these people are supposed to be not even remembering, you know what, these people are human just like me. No one has arrived. Nobody. Until God shows back up and and, and judges this earth, this is our time to try to get this thing right, to try to be better and try to be better than we were yesterday. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've heard it said that everyone wants to get to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Absolutely. <laughs> we're going to tap the clutch 
and we're going to shift gears here a little bit and we're going to touch on your EMS service that you have delivered to the city of Cleveland for 20 plus years. We know that sure. <laughs> we know that Cleveland EMS is staffed with on the average of 333 professionals who run 25 state-of-the-art advanced life support ambulances handling over 116,000 plus emergency calls annually and the dispatch center also known as the red center as i'm told is now run locally with certified emergency medical dispatchers trained on a computer aided dispatching system which allows for call prioritizing pre-arrival instructions and the tracking of ambulances and support vehicles i know you've always been committed to improving the quality of life in the city of cleveland by maintaining the highest ethical and professional standards of pre-hospital care, always treating your patients with dignity and respect, and caring for each patient as if they were a member of your own family. So shifting gears here, can you share with our listeners what was your role in the life-saving and life-sustaining process as an EMT? Uh, well, pre-hospital emergency care is, just, is, is quite simple. Um, you have yourself and a partner who are mandated and, and take an oath of office to the citizens of the city of Cleveland that you will provide pre-hospital emergency care, which involves responding to different incidences throughout the city, whether they be major or minor, and provide the best care. And if that person requires transport to a local hospital, that's what our responsibility was. Now, obviously, if there was some serious medical things going on, then we were, uh, we were definitely responsible for other things. But that is the primary responsibility. I see. I see. Hey, what's it like inside one of those state-of-the-art ambulances? <laughs> it's, it, it becomes like your second home, honestly. Uh, I was blessed enough to have a partner who he and I, our personalities were very similar. Um, we understood the, the magnitude of the responsibility that was placed on us. And so when, when we received a call where it was just absolute chaos, we fed off of each other's calm. Um, I'm, I'm generally a laid back person, um, calm, peaceful demeanor. I have a peaceful spirit about myself. So if, if it was a very, very serious situation, we didn't lose our cool and it worked very well for us. Um, I was partners with my, my former partner, the better part of 15 years. And he was the best partner because again, we could feed off of each other. We knew that if, if things got crazy, uh, no one was going to lose their mind. And you know, it, it's hard when you're dealing with those types of situations because any split second decision that you make could literally cost someone their life yeah that's true that's true you you answered my next question and it's really great that you had an opportunity to partner with your partner for such a long period of time you said 15 years that's fantastic i mean yeah. but in general do you have a regular partner like that or are you required to rotate or have other partners what's that process like no yeah you have a regular partner the only time um that that you don't see your regular partners if they are on vacation or some type of leave or they you know call off sick or something like that but overall you are with the same person uh, every day until you decide that this is not the person I want to work with anymore I see. but I was blessed enough like I said actually my partner was <laughs> one of my training officers when I was in the academy and I had heard 
stories about, I, I knew him, but, you know, uh, the talk was that, you know, over at the unit I was uh, interested in, that they really took care of people on, on that side of town, so. I see. Did you and your partner take turns driving the rig while the other worked in the back on the patients? How did that process work out? Well, it all depended upon, uh, to answer your question, yes, but if it was, um, a very serious situation, then we would receive assistance from uh, the first responder, which was Cleveland Fire, and uh, we would have a bunch of people in the back, and one of their folks would drive us to the hospital if it was a, you know, a life or death uh, scenario. I see. Can you share with us what kind of equipment they have on board in the back of those uh, fancy ambulances? like a mini hospital. We obviously had our cardiac monitors. We, we were able to um, provide various drugs that people would need and, and based, based on the emergency. We had intravenous equipment where we can start IVs, we can get fluids, we can regulate blood pressures. Uh, we have various splints, uh, a multitude of things we uh, were at our disposal. Well, you know, most people think we just pick people up and just drive to the hospital. No, this is a very, very invasive, uh, as I said, I, uh, in layman's terms, it's a hospital on wheels. I see. Uh, there's a lot of things that we were able to do in the back of that squad, uh, depending upon the nature of the emergency, you know, short of uh, surgery. But we can do everything that they do in the hospital. Uh, some things we couldn't, obviously, because of the environment. Uh, when you're in the back of the squad, you, you always risk infection and things like that because you have so many people in and out and with the call volume, it's kind of difficult to keep up because it's one call after another, after another, after another. But we are a mini hospital on wheels. Wow, that's interesting. That really is. As you can recall, as best as you can recall in general, what was your response time? Like the interval between receipt of a 911 call and the arrival of your squad as the first emergency medical service unit on the scene of a reported emergency, more or less. The protocol was you had to be there depending upon where you responded from. You know, the city is so busy, the SOP or standard operating procedure, protocol I should say, it, you could never adhere to it because we would find, you know, we were assigned to a certain point of uh, where we responded from, which was the southeast side of Cleveland, but because the city was so busy and we got so many calls, I could find myself responding from Fairview Hospital to the Euclid area. Wow. And it would take you a half an hour, 45 minutes to get there. It was just that saturated. Now, on a, uh, on a typical day where everything lines up and the, and the universe is doing what it's supposed to do, <laughs> and I'm responding from my home base, which is the south, southeast side of Cleveland, response times would be anywhere between six and eight minutes. But that was, it was impossible to do that because of the amount, the volume of calls that we get. And, and people call 911 for various different reasons. And uh, the beauty in that is, as I said, I had a partner, you know, um, who didn't take it personal. Um, we literally have had people call 911 because they wanted something to eat. We have, we've, I've had people call 911 because they were lonely. I've had people call 911 because the power went off. I mean, there's so many, and you have to respond to these calls. And if a person, especially the elderly, you respond to an elderly person, elderly person's home in the, um, in the winter months and their power is off, you got to take them to the 
hospital. I see. You have to. That's interesting. That really is. So what was that adrenaline rush like? Every time you and your squad partner would receive a call and you went to lights and sirens and be able to lay on that big horn and blow through red lights in the heart, <laughs> <laughs> in the heart of downtown oh, Cleveland. Wow. I mean, that is a power that is only limited to emergency vehicles, a very select group of vehicles on the road. What was that experience like, and do you miss it at all? Well, I have to take it back to the beginning, because when I graduated from medic school, I felt as though I'm this trained, ready professional. I have the book smarts, I'm ready, I've taken my oath of office, and then reality kicked in. And I'm not saying uh, the education was not important, because it absolutely was, but, it, it, you know, for a large area like the city of Cleveland, it didn't prepare you for the reality that you were about to face. Um, my very first call was, was awful. It was a multi-casual uh, accident, and uh, there were people everywhere. And so I get out of the squad, and, I, I mean, I just froze because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I, I was actually afraid, not even afraid to, to do something wrong, just afraid to do something, period. Sure. To see that destruction that I saw, it was really a wake-up call. And from that point on, after that very first call that really, really kind of scared me, I took it upon myself to say, you know what? I need to do some introspective things with myself because this type of profession will actually put a person <laughs> in, in the nut house, if you will if you're not prepared for what you will see, what you will hear, what you will endure, what you will experience in uh, people who are suffering. Because again, it was it was more than just sick people and more than just gunshot wounds and more than just my belly hurts. This is, is you're a doctor, you're a philosopher, you're a father, you're a cousin, you're a confidant, you're a friend. I mean, it, and the list goes on and on and on and on of all of the things that you encounter with different people and um, for me because I have a heart for people it was it was very simple for me to be able to not allow what I was seeing and experiencing and hearing to cause me to lose my cool because my focus again is is to serve people to the best of my ability yeah absolutely I mean let's push in a little bit further on that because you brought up the stresses of the job how was it how did you handle the stresses of the job I mean what were some of your out outlets that you would utilize to reduce the everyday everyday stressors of life and death and seeing constant suffering well there's, there's two two answers to that professionally the city of cleveland offered us critical um incident stress debriefing if we felt the call was too much for us we could take the time off and then they had a few other services there were mental health services things like that but personally it was just god himself uh oh. if i if i didn't have a relationship with god honestly i wouldn't be speaking to your listeners today because I have seen some of the most awful things that a human being could ever experience and I'm doing it in a uh, professional capacity. I used to tell my children when they were little, if I could place my eyes in their bodies just for a day to experience what I, what I see when I leave this house, it'll change your life. To this day, I still visualize some of the things that I saw and experienced and the smells uh, that I've experienced and the environments that I've been in and the people that I've talked to and literally the fights <laughs> that I've gotten in trying to help someone. Absolutely. Sure, sure. Hey, you're listening to Light em Up. We take a deep dive on the criminal justice system, crime scene investigation, and leadership. We enlighten, educate, 
and empower others with the truth, like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, have you ever encountered any drivers that would just simply not yield to your emergency vehicle attempting to pass by with your emergency lights and sirens on? I laugh about that because in my humble opinion, that was the toughest part of the job. <laughs> wow. People don't pull over. Um, and it's clearly uh, when you obtain your driver's license, that's one of the things that they cover. Uh, people wouldn't pull over and you're trying to get somewhere. That was the hardest part of the job, responding to calls because people, you know, most people would just stop exactly where they are. It wouldn't pull over to the right or there was a great deal of time that people would pull to the left <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> oh yeah yeah that happened and and you know you're driving a, a two-ton vehicle at a nice rate of speed and can you imagine what a collision like that would be yeah. um yeah. it was very tough responding to calls because people were especially during heavy traffic hours people didn't they just and i'm not going to say they didn't care they just didn't do the right thing so that we could get where we needed to be safely yeah yeah i can see it people in cleveland drive crazy just like it was detroit so i get it <laughs> well you, you know what i say to that most drivers took a test on that day and they passed and i'll leave that right there <laughs> <laughs> i get it i do hey let's uh let's push in a little bit on the tough and tumble mean streets of cleveland was in fact a bullet resistant vest part of your regular equipment just like rubber gloves were absolutely yes Absolutely. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, we had to wear those bulletproof vests. And uh, for a period of time, it was optional. But then we found that people were actually assaulting us. So it became uh, the city put in a mandate that we had to wear them all the time. I see. Let's talk a little bit about this COVID-19 situation. How difficult. Mm. <laughs> yeah heavy stuff how difficult would it have been in your professional opinion as we have heard and we've read articles that some ems technicians have had to make life and death decisions on the spot as to whether or not to transport individuals suffering with covid19 to a hospital what are your thoughts on that well um you know we took an oath of office and this is just for healthcare in general. Um, with this pandemic, you pretty much are saying to yourself, you're willing to sacrifice yourself for someone else. And while it's difficult, you know, you have family and you have people that love you, you have all of that. But when you decide to take up, take up this responsibility, there's no gray area. You know, if a person has COVID-19, you have to take care of them. There's no, there's no negotiating. There's no, I don't want to take this call today. Because if you do that, you won't be employed too much longer. So when you, when you decide to take the oath of office as a EMT or paramedic or nurse or doctor or anything, it comes with everything that comes along with it and that's even something as deadly as the coronavirus hmm, yeah wow yeah you have to go there's no uh, ifs ands or buts about it you get the call absolutely not you go share with us one of those cool acronyms that help you to remember, for example, a step-by-step -step procedure of an important life-saving or evaluating process. Like, for example, in my field, SWAT, S-W-A-T, stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. And mm -hmm. one that comes to my mind spells the word SAMPLE, S-A-M-P-L-E. And that's regarding taking a history on a patient. For example, the S is for signs and symptoms. The yeah. 
A is for allergies. M is for medications that the patient may be taking. P is for pertinent past history. L is for last oral intake. And the E represents the events leading to the injury or illness. Boom, there you have it, the word sample. Can you share with us an acronym that comes to mind like that? Uh, there's quite a few. Um, I'm thinking of a traumatic situation. Um, there's an acronym called DCAT-BTLS. Deformities, contusions, abrasions, lacerations, trauma, and symptoms. So pretty much what happens is with the trauma victim, uh, this is what they call the golden hour. If the person is uh, very serious, then you have, that person has to be transported immediately. So you have to do a, a rapid trauma assessment, get them packaged and get to the hospital because the only thing that really can save a person that has a serious traumatic injury, and I'm talking about maybe like GSWs, which uh, stands for gunshot wounds, stabbings, explosions, things like that. They need surgery. Sure. That's what they need, surgery. Yes, we sustain them. We do, you know, our workups and things like that, but the main priority is surgery. No, I get it. I do. I do. Absolutely. I like those acronyms. You shared many of them with me in the past. I find them all to be interesting. Really good stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, towards the latter years of your career with the city of Cleveland, as your experience, skills, knowledge, and abilities on the job positioned you to run for the president of the local EMS union, can you share with our listeners what that experience was like? It was awful. How so? Personally, it was great. Professionally, it was awful, and I'll tell you why, and I'll, and I'll be candid. Unfortunately, racism exists everywhere that we go, and uh, there were some folks who shared the same job responsibility as myself, took the same oath of office as myself, swore to take care of the city, the citizens of the city of Cleveland, just like myself. But unfortunately, they were not prepared for an African-American man to lead that union. And so the experience professionally was awful um, in that aspect. Um, but it also provided me with the tools to continue to stay strong because we had an awesome platform. You know, people were so intimidated because we took the approach to do something different. Again, my unofficial title, I'm a change agent. And what I saw when I ran for the president of the Cleveland Association of Rescue Employees is that we needed a change. And and I've been afforded the, the beautiful opportunity to be trained and mentored and educated by some of the greatest leaders that the city of Cleveland has ever seen. And so one of the things that I, that I have uh, always been taught is sometimes you have to go into enemy territory to make progress. So I decided to go and speak to those at City Hall, and that was a no-no, unwritten no-no. You don't talk to the enemy, and I just, that's not who I am, and we made great progress. I was able to talk to multiple members of the city of Cleveland. I, I was able to sit down and talk with the mayor and a few others, and people fe felt threatened by that. They felt as though I was not going to be loyal to the union members. Because, again, it was something that they'd never seen. We, we ran a true campaign, and that scared a lot of folks. Along with the racist stuff, um, I would find or have reports that, um, you know, the literature that we were placing in the EMS rooms at the different hospitals, there were uh, racial slurs put on the signs or, you know, go back to Africa, these types of things. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't scare me at all. It really didn't. 
didn't. It just made me understand that, you know, we're still dealing with this even now. And it made me much more determined to try to win this election. Because again, I don't see color in people. What I see is human family. That's it. And there was a lot of things that we needed to tighten up on in terms of what the employee, I felt the employees needed. But I know that any any negotiation that you engage in, there has to be some give and take. What are you willing to give to be able to get what you want? And so people weren't willing to hear that. They wanted me to be a person who would go and kick down the doors of someone's office with a bullyish attitude. And, and, and that's just not who I am. And sometimes that philosophy doesn't get you anywhere anyway. Yeah, that's and true. so the experience, um, it, it was different. It was different. I don't regret doing it, but it opened my eyes and, and it really reared the racist nature of some of the people that were in these ambulances actually working on uh, the east side of Cleveland, uh, where most African-Americans are. And that really troubled me. That really troubled me. No, I get it. I do. As we get ready to tap out on this particular aspect of what we've been talking about this evening can you share with us as best you can regarding maybe a typical service run that you might have encountered during a standard shift that is memorable in your heart and mind and why so um well there's a few the one that stands out in my mind this is actually a very this is a funny scenario actually uh, i can i can speak candidly on this one <laughs> we have we had a gentleman that would call 911 all the time because he wanted to have lunch at one of the local hospitals. And I'm able to share this. I, you know, I can't really go into anything specific with anything else. But this, this kind of, I think, sh would show your listeners of the type of different scenarios that we had to face, whether they be good, bad, or indifferent. So this gentleman, he knew to call, uh, what time to call, and what time lunch was served at the hospital. He also was a proclaimed protege of Michael Jackson. So he would call 911 and tell the dispatch operator that he was having something serious going on like chest pain or he was short of breath or something like that and we would respond and obviously we would have to make sure that um, he was fine but I, I tell you every time we responded to this man we would get a full Michael Jackson concert <laughs> in the back of the squad oh my and it was hilarious <laughs> it was hilarious <laughs> Oh, um, his catalog was vast, and he could actually sing and dance. Wow. He really well, could. He was a, a triple threat, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man, that's too much. Well, that that is definitely uh, a great way to tap out on that particular chapter of uh, what we've been talking about tonight. Now we're going to shift gears again, though, as we head into the final chapter of our conversation this evening. We're going to start talking about relationship issues. Men are often reluctant to report abuse because they feel embarrassed or are fearful that they won't be believed or are scared maybe that their partner will take revenge on them. And, you know, in all honesty, men rarely talk about any abuse that they may be encountering. What have been some of the abusive experiences that you've encountered in the past, in the past that you would be willing to share in the hope of helping men specifically, but also anyone in general, perhaps how to know better how to navigate their troubled relationship? Well, there's multiple answers that I that I have for that, but I'll start with the it's addressing the men. Um, one of the things 
that I truly believe and know, not just from from education and reading and study, from personal experience, men, we are taught to be very prideful. We're, we're taught not to show emotion. We're taught not to cry. And, you know, we have to be tough and we have to be all these things. And being vulnerable makes us, if you will, soft. And that is just the, the it's false. It's a false narrative. While, while God created the woman to be the nurturer and have all of the emotion, men have emotion too, but the biggest factor in that is we're prideful. So I truly believe that that pride factor kicks in. And this is why guys will not speak up because they feel like they'll be looked at as less than or not a strong man or weak-minded man. And part of that is the label of society. If you think about it, um, I'm not, I don't really do um, social media personally, but I do it professionally with my organization. And you see it all the time. I want a real man or a real this or a real that. You know, stereotypical things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things because what is a real whatever? What does that mean? But for me personally, um, I've experienced verbal, physical, verbal abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse in the past. And uh, at, when it happened, I didn't understand it and I didn't know how to deal with it because it, you know, it was, it was so long ago in the past that I, I was not of the mindset, the education, or nor did I have the capability to even know how to deal with it. So I did like most guys. I, I got into a shell, and, and what we do is we hold these things in, not realizing that if we don't begin to try to learn how to either A, get counseling, B, heal, or C, do something to change what we're feeling, every relationship that we encounter no matter what it is this abuse is going to rear its ugly head in some shape form or fashion and and you know you oftentimes when you meet a person and you see somebody they're always uh, you know i'm speaking of men now it's always so mean maybe this person was abused and never got help for it you just don't know you know verbal abuse i think is up there in my humble opinion it's higher than physical abuse because when someone tears you down it tears away at your your soul and your fabric and you began to question who you are and you know who you are but then you start second guessing yourself especially when it's a narcissistic type of verbal abuse it tore me to the point of death did. I, I questioned who I was. I didn't believe who I was because I was constantly being told something different. And it reminds me as a as a parent, you know, um, I remember uh, there's no manual for parenting, but I, I, I took some classes and, and I was always told, you have to be careful what you say. A lot of parents call their children stupid. And you hear that over and over and over again. And eventually that child is going to believe they're stupid. So if a man is continuously told he's not a real man or he's not a provider or he's not this or not that he's going to feel less than his worth is going to he's going to feel like nothing and he's going to begin begin to believe that and then that's going to affect every relationship that he has because if he can't be productive in his relationship with his partner then he's going to begin to think he can't be productive in any relationship with anything or anyone yeah absolutely no you make tremendous points there and we want to mention to everyone listening that everyone deserves relationships free of domestic violence if you or someone you know is suffering at the hands of another person when you're ready to talk the trained professionals at the national domestic violence hotline are ready to listen with confidential support 24 7 365 you can call the national domestic violence hotline by dialing 1-800-799-SAFE and SAFE corresponds to the number 7233 hey at any time 
in your past relationship experiences, did you ever feel like a man exiled on an island or alone with a lack of understanding from friends and family? And if yes, how did that impact you and how did you attempt to work through that adversity? Absolutely it did because um, I, I think that those that love you don't want to see you suffer. However, most of the time in my experience, people were giving me advice based on their emotion and not their mind. And what I mean by that is, you know, you hear something and, you know, I've, I've had people quote, why do you stay? And, you know, all of those other kinds of things. And that begins to push you to stay closer to the situation that you know you shouldn't be in anyway. And so a lot of times I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't share anything. I would try to figure this thing out on my own. And it only created more internal turmoil for me because I was hurting, afraid to speak up for fear. I was embarrassed for fear that I would be criticized by those that love me. And again, because of the, the, the verbal abuse that I was experiencing, you know, I question if I was even capable of just existing at times, going through that kind of stuff. No, absolutely. It can be a mind game and it can uh, wreak havoc on you in more ways than one. What advice would you give to men specifically, but to anyone in general, so that they would come forward and speak their truths as you are today? It starts with faith. It starts with the belief that something is wrong. A lot of times when you're in situations, especially when your emotions are involved, you don't see that. Um, and when, you know, the people that you confide in, if they're not people who are going to be straight forward with you, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Meaning that if the person is gonna, just gonna say what you wanna say, say what you wanna hear, I'm sorry, just to not upset you, then those people don't don't serve the purpose of leading you to your healing. And and I think it takes, it takes for a person to say enough is enough, or I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. It, 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 it honestly, and I'm saying this from a, a, a personal experience, you can have people giving you the golden advice. You really can. Can. But until it, use, it clicks in your mind or that light bulb kicks in, if you will, people can tell you as much as they want to tell you. You're going to stay in it. You know, because the, pattern, the uh, pattern of abuse is most abused people latch on to the abuser. Right. And so if you confide in someone, just know that, you know, the, the and I'm speaking to people also who give advice. Don't condemn people for staying with somebody that they know they shouldn't be with. Don't talk down to them. If you don't have anything good to say, say nothing. Because what people need need to get through tough situations is love. Not condemnation, not to be told that they're stupid, not to be questioned why you're doing it, not to be ridiculed, not because the person is already being beat down by the person that's in front of them. We turn to those that we love for support, not for, for condemnation. And I'm speaking from a personal perspective because I have been condemned by people that say that they love me. I have been put down and it made me feel even much worse. So of course, now I've turned to the people that I love and I'm looking at my abuser and so for me, it's like, I might as well stay with my abuser. You know, it's almost like a vicious cycle, if you will. No, absolutely. I get it. If you are a man in an abusive relationship, it's important to know that you're not alone. Abuse of men happens far more often than you might expect in both heterosexual and same-sex relationships. It happens to men from all cultures and all walks of life, regardless of age or occupation. Figures suggest that as many as one in seven victims of domestic violence 
violence are male. No matter how hopeless you may feel, there is hope. Every voice is important. Every testimony has value. And every voice has the power to give hope. Whatever the circumstances that you are going through, you can overcome these challenges and escape the violence and abuse that you are experiencing. If you are suffering at the hands of your domestic partner from intimate partner violence, also known as IPV, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline by dialing 1-800-799-SAFE or 7233. And again, the letters SAFE correspond to the numbers 7233. Hey Hayward, how has the simple act of talking about your past situations helped you to heal? It's therapeutic. It took me time to be able to do that because, you know, as a child, communication was very limited with the males in the family because, again, the thing was we're tough guys. We have our shield on and, you know, we keep things in inwardly. And and for me, that was an internal conflict because I knew as a child, I knew as a child, I probably, I, I realized it when I was about 12 years old. My heart is just like that of God. But because of what I was seeing around me, you know, the tough exterior, the tough shell, and you don't cry, and you're, you know, tough guy, and all that other stuff. It was an internal conflict for me because I had to be somebody that I was not. Um, I am very emotional. I'm a very sensitive person. I love just like God. That's men and women alike. I don't have a problem telling a man I love him. It's not a, a homophobic thing for me where most people, you know, guys, that's, you know, we don't tell each other we love each other because that means, you no, know, it means I love you. That's all it means. Right. That's all it means. Absolutely. And so those experiences uh, helped me to gain the courage that I needed to be who God called me to be, which is a person that loves people, that loves people genuinely. There's no conditions on my love. I don't need you to do anything. It doesn't matter what you are or are not doing. My love is genuine. It's just like God. And I've known that for a long time. And it kind of scared me a little bit there because, again, I would always question, you know, God, like, hey, why me? You know, I'm, I'm nobody. You know, I've taken on the role and, and, and taken it by the horns. I am a nobody just trying to reach somebody who'll listen. Absolutely. And like I've told people before, God has your picture on his refrigerator and he loves you as if you were the only person in this universe that needed love. So you are definitely special. Regarding your past experiences, is it too soon to say or to see? But how has this shaking, beating and pressing down in your spirit molded you and prepared you for greater things to come? One of the things I'm, I, I still question to, to this day is the strength. And if we had the time to talk, I could you know kind of tie into I have survived some of the most trying things that in, no human being could probably endure but again when you go through those things you don't think about your strength you think about and well at, at least for me I'm thinking about the suffering that I'm experiencing but those experiences have have made me wiser it has made me stronger um, one of the biggest things that take away from a lot of those experiences is I have to modify how I love people that doesn't mean I change it. What it means is that I have loved people 
so much that it has literally almost killed me because I always see the good in the person no matter what. And the, the biggest takeaway I would encourage the listeners, if you're if you're interceding on someone's behalf and they just want to stay stuck in that particular scenario, you have to take a few steps back for your own sanity because you'll end up either dead or in a mental hospital or sick from it. Trying to, And that is the thing for me that I've been embracing and trying to change a little bit because like I said, I see a person and I know there's a, it can be a ton of problems and, and I'm still trying and I'm still helping and I'm still embracing and not realizing how it's literally affecting me. And I, I've, I've had to really focus on not allowing someone else's suffering to literally take me out. Yeah, yeah. You have to be strong. You have to put on the full armor of God and try to protect yourself at all times as if you were a boxer in the ring. And to piggyback on that, you know, in order to be strong and, for example, last in the boxing ring, your your depth in rounds, I know you're a, a boxing fan, a boxing aficionado very much. <laughs> so. In order to last in the ring, your depth and rounds that you answer the bell for, it's directly related to your conditioning and the road work that perhaps you put in uh, in the streets, you know. And so as your character and integrity has been attacked in your previous relationship experiences, what has been one of the main sources of strength, light, hope, things like that that have carried you through the extended mental, psychological, emotional, and spiritual abuse that you've been exposed to in your lifetime? Well, when I, when I think of that, I think of all kinds of relationships because I've been criticized professionally, personally, all kinds of things. And you know what I You know, the thing that I have stuck to, the people that are criticizing, I still show them love. I don't turn the other cheek like most people would want to. I don't try to seek revenge or do anything to people. Never have and never will. And that is the key to me being, continuing to build character, continuing to mirror the person that God has created me to be. Because if you try to do things the other way, if you try to, to, to seek revenge or uh, uh, things of that nature, nine times out of ten is not going to go as you expect it. And it's only going to cause you more internal suffering anyway. We have to learn to forgive, which I've, I've heard over the years so many people say, I don't know how to forgive. I don't want to forgive. And trust me, I've been injured severely by people. But what I need the listeners to understand is forgiveness is not about them. It's not about the person that injured you. It's not about the person that did something to you. It's not about the person that took something from you. It is about you and your peace. And you release yourself. Once you forgive that person, trust me, you'll feel a tremendous weight lifted off of you. No, it doesn't mean you're free and clear. You're still going to feel the sting of that pain. But once you release yourself from that, you are holding on to and not forgiving that person, you'll, you'll feel a tremendous change. And forgiveness is so important. No, absolutely. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, sexual violence, and or intimate partner stalking with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the use of victim services. And one in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. And again, we want to let you know that everyone deserves a relationship that is free from domestic violence. If you or someone you know is suffering at the hands of another person, when you're ready to talk, the trained professionals at the National Domestic Violence Hotline are ready to listen. With confidential support 24-7, 
365 days out of the year. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline by dialing 1-800-799-SAFE, and SAFE corresponds to the numbers 7233. As I mentioned a little while ago, one in seven men are in an abusive relationship. And as I recall, in reference to previous relationships, previous things that you may have mentioned, I remember you saying that you felt stupid and that you had wasted your time or you felt as if you had wasted your time. For what reasons did those feelings predominate in your thoughts in the past? Because I didn't know any better. Every experience is a, is a life lesson. But when you're hurt to the magnitude of some of the, the, the experiences that I've had, you don't think about those things because the pain is overwhelming. Relationship hurt, in my humble opinion, is up there with death in, in, in the cycle of grief. It, it's, it's awful when you are hurt by someone that uh, tells you that they love you. And so, you know, I, I, going through those scenarios, I, I really felt kind of silly. I was, I was embarrassed thinking about what people were going to say and you know how people were going to size me up as a person inadequate or things of that nature and again you know you're hearing these things from the person that is in front of you your mind just begins to wonder you know I, it's it's that theory of overthinking overthinking is probably up there with alcoholism yeah. um, because once your mind gets to rolling you, you, you can just come up with any scenario in your mind some of it may be true some of it may not be true. Some of it may just be what you're creating in your own spirit. And that's why I felt that way. No, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And looking back over time and you've had your share of love abuse, you know, times when your heart has been manipulated and the strength and the power of the word love had been misused. And we've talked in the past regarding the multiple ways that your enemies have tried to triumph over you and kill you. But Clearly, greater is he that is in you than you that are in the world. And what advice would you give or what advice would you have for a fellow man in the love game? Men specifically, but anyone in general, of course. I think the biggest thing is that we have to understand that time is our friend. I'll put it this way. <laughs> I, I'm a person who uses analogy. You go to the car dealership, salesman walks out, and he shows you this nice, beautiful car. He's going to try to sell you on all of the best features of it. Hey, it's got leather, and look at the moonroof, and it'll probably park itself. Better yet, it may even fly. And so, of course, your adrenaline is pumping, and you know you may think as a, as a prospective buyer, this is this is a great buy. I mean, this may be pretty cool in the summer, you know. So, it, relationships are the same thing. There's this phenomenon called love euphoria. I uh, studied this uh, when I was in training to be a minister some years ago. Love euphoria starts about two weeks in to a new relationship because we already have these fantasies in our minds of what we want our relationship to be, what the ideal person. And wants we want them to be like to look like to smell like whatever those things are we've created in our mind and so you someone steps into your life and you see most of the qualities that you desire and so you're you're taking your time and spending time with this person and then once a once you know a few moments into it maybe a week or two or three weeks or a month or whatever the case may be you start to think this is the one and you're not really focusing on the person per se 
you're focusing on the fantasy in your mind. Like, wow, this this person, they communicate well. Oh, they look good. They're attractive and they have a job and all of these things. But we're not really focusing on who the person is. We're focusing on what the person presents. There's a difference. So now that love euphoria has kicked in. And let's say three, six months down the road, now you're in love. And so then you begin to start paying attention to the things that you should have been paying attention to in the first place, which is who the person is. You didn't realize that the person had a temper because it was all so hunky-dory and, you know, you may have had some some bumps in the road along the way, but you didn't pay attention to those because of the fact that I've got the, this is the one. They've got all the qualities that I've been looking for and so on and so forth. And so to tie it all up, that love you for uh studies show it lasts up to two years but when the reality kicks in it's like again i'm a person of analogies you're riding on the freeway at 60 miles an hour and you take a look to the scenery to the left and you turn back to focus on the road and didn't realize that you are embarking upon the back of a semi bam and you hit it that's what love euphoria would do to you if you don't pay attention um there's a, a preacher creflo dollar is his name and he does a little lecture on relationships and i think it's really it's very impactful and it's very simple. You need to ask questions. And if a person is not willing to ask questions that you want to be with, you need to look somewhere else. Because it should, especially if this is a person that you are talking about making something permanent with. And time is your friend. You got to take your time. No, you will never know a person in a year or two. And I get it. People say, oh, wait two years to do this and wait two years to do that. And three years to do this and four years to do that. That's what society says. But in reality, in reality, you, it takes a lifetime to get to know a person. And yes, you'll get through the preliminary stuff and, and things will start to change and the newness of the car we spoke about a minute ago will start to wear off and the leather is not so shiny anymore. So the question then is, what do you do? Well, so that you won't get caught up in the love euphoria, you have to start not so much focusing on the presentation, but trying to understand who this person is that's in front of you. And when you see those red flags, Listen to them, because one of the things that I have uh, been guilty of in my walk is, again, it is not listening to the red flag. But my heart always tells me, oh, we can get through that. We'll work through, We'll work on that. And sometimes things can't be worked on if you don't have two willing individuals to put the work in. And so for anyone who's interested in those types of relationships, you gotta, you got to take your time. You have to be willing to ask tough questions. You have to be, because if you don't, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. Absolutely. Man, those are fantastic truth bombs. Absolutely. If you're a man in an abusive relationship, it's important to know that you're not alone. Abuse of men happens far more often than you might expect in both heterosexual and same-sex relationships. It happens to men from all cultures and all walks of life, regardless of age or occupation. Figures suggest that as many as one in seven victims of domestic violence are male, and no matter how hopeless you may feel, there is hope. Every voice is important and every testimony has value, and every voice has the power to give hope. Whatever the circumstances, you are 
going through, you can overcome these challenges and escape the violence and abuse that you are experiencing. If you're suffering at the hands of your domestic partner from intimate partner violence, also known as IPV, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline by dialing 1-800-799-SAFE. Hey Hayward, take a moment if you would and share with our listeners about the Kick Foundation, what it is, and how does it serve the community? Oh wow, that's um, one of um, three nonprofit organizations that I have. It's very passionate, very personal to me. The Kick Foundation, the acronym is Keep Inspiring Clean Kidneys. Just for the sake of the listeners knowing, I was diagnosed with uh, chronic kidney disease in 2017, gainfully employed with very good insurance, and I experienced a lot of problems with the process of uh, the medical system, the process of the transplant process, just all kinds of things that you, you, you just don't expect to happen for a person who, you know, who's in my, and it has nothing to do with finances. I'm just saying the fact that I got great insurance, so on and so forth. And I was very disappointed at some things that I experienced. And so I decided to start a, uh, my newest endeavor, which is the Kick Foundation. And what our goal is, is to advocate primarily for anyone suffering with chronic kidney disease. That is from education to health and wellness, to mental health resources, to being advocates for people who have to deal with the transplant system. We're prepared to go to Washington, D.C. We need to see some changes in how the transplant process goes. I mean, as a healthcare professional, I totally understand what they need to do and why they need to do it. But there definitely needs to be some changes to that process because, you know, sometimes it puts you, it's a waiting game. And sometimes, um, you know, people are waiting for years for organs and uh, that can be very stressful because you know that this 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 disease right now has surpassed breast cancer it's the ninth leading cause of death in the United States it's just a terrible 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 disease it really is and so that's what the primary focus of the kick foundation is we want to teach people about what it means to be living donors uh, most people want to donate organs uh, after they return to the Lord and we want to try to educate people on the importance of being a living donor most people don't know it is safer to donate an organ versus driving your own car. Wow. We want to give people the tools that they need when it comes to medication. We want, pe- we want people to understand the magnitude and the impact of dialysis and the forms of dialysis and what to expect and what questions to ask and also be willing to advocate for themselves. While, while, while our medical professionals have our best interest at heart, you still have to advocate for yourself. It's okay to say no to your physician. Most people are not willing to do that because they're, you know, this person is telling me what I need giving me the tools I need for my recovery, my success. But if something doesn't sound right, you have the right to ask. You have the right to say no. Absolutely. To be your own patient advocate. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are so blessed because we always have such fantastic guests on our show. And tonight, you definitely proved to be another fantastic guest. And we are so tremendously grateful to you for your time, your talents, your expertise. It just, it's been an excellent time well spent with you you know Hayward we always like to give our special guests the last and best word so can you take us out on some kernels of wisdom that will serve to guide enlighten educate and empower us to do better now that we know better I think it's fairly simple again um 
God has commanded me to, to tell people we have to get back to the basics. It's okay to speak to people. It's okay. Uh, it's okay to show love to people. It's okay to do that. Use your experiences in life to teach you to be different, to teach you to share your experiences. So many people are all are, are, are afraid to share their experiences. But what we don't know is, is, is that how many people we can help that may be going through the same thing that we're going through or something similar and sharing our, as believers, we call it our testimony, could literally save someone's life. Um, this is a time where we need love more than ever because there's so much hatred in the world. And even if we look at what's happening with the pandemic and they're just saying, you know, we're going to open things up. You know, we have conspiracy theorists about we're more so worried about where the virus came from versus taking care of the human family. This is an opportunity. This has been an opportunity really for us to even tune in to find out for those of us who don't know ourselves being locked in. This was an excellent opportunity for us us to learn about ourselves, to learn who we are, what our purpose is, what we should do if we return back to whatever the new normal is going to be. It's not necessarily about going to a building. It's about your relationship with God. If, if, if your relationship with God is compromised in any kind of way, I would encourage every believer and non-believer to work on strengthening that relationship because I'm a living witness. Without God in my life, I wouldn't be here to talk to you guys about anything that has happened to me, any experience that I've had, it's all because of him. God is real. It's not a fairy tale. It's not all of these different things that people have portrayed it to be. It's not a game. It's not any of those things. God has had his hand in my life and my affairs since the beginning. And even with this last battle, I was told on four different occasions by the medical community that I was going to die. And God had a different plan. I'm still here because my work is not done. I've been at this for the better part of 25 years in multiple multiple capacities, and I'm, I'm just honored to have had this opportunity to share just a little smidget of some of the things that uh, I, I hope and pray that are, are going to open some eyes, change some hearts. Rome wasn't built in a day, so we know that things take time to change. But if we really want to change our environment, we have to look within ourselves. We always look for someone else to make change but we don't want to change ourselves if we work on changing ourselves and show love to the human family then and only then will we begin to see some adjustment in the signs of the times that we're living in absolutely you've been listening to light them up we take a deep dive on the criminal justice system crime scene investigation and leadership we enlighten educate and empower others with the truth like it or not the truth disturbs the truth divides but ultimately the truth delivers.